Hello there, and welcome to Fuds on Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined today by Scott. Hello. Let's just get straight into it by saying that around these parts, we're rather fond of stop-motion animation. For example, in three of the last four years, our year-end best-of episode has seen us talking about a stop-motion animation. And some of my clearest memories of children's television feature it. Ardman Animation's Morph and Heartbeat, Camberwick Green and Trumpton, I don't think Trumpton's famous firefighter roll call of Pew Pew Barney McGrew <laughs> Cuthbert Dibble Grub would have been quite so sticky had it not been accompanied by the distinctive stop motion animated puppets. The Trapdoor, Burke, <laughs> and Paddington, which used a combination of cutout and puppet animation. We'll find out in a moment if Scott feels similarly, but I've always felt that stop motion animation has, well, more soul than any other animation style. I think that's partly because it's clearly so painstaking. Obviously all forms from hand-drawn cartoons to 3D computer-rendered animation can involve passion, skill and vast amounts of effort. But there's something about knowing that everything that moved was moved by hand, one tiny increment at a time, on an object that exists in the world. And seeing the rippling of fur or plasticine caused by fingertips only adds to that sensation. This is, perhaps, one of the reasons I so dislike the Lego movies. As well as being rubbish, they used computers to replicate stop-motion animation, and I rather feel that this is cheating. Stop-motion animation has also, to me at least, always felt particularly three-dimensional, without the need for silly glasses. And then, of course, there's always the endless appeal of things uh, recreated in miniature. But what say you, Scott? Yes, likewise, I've got a lot of the same cultural touchstones, of course, um, button moon and all that. Um, yeah, uh, basically, yes, uh, there, there is something about the physicality of the objects and characters being moved and the details that you can see in them that makes it uh, a very grounded experience. It does make it feel a bit more real. It kind of blurs a little bit the line between an animation and reality, even when you're talking about, I don't know, plasticine penguins um <laughs> yeah there is something to it that makes it a very worthy category of its own between like the classical animation and real life and uh, yeah it does uh, give it a, a certain presence that is not found in mm-hmm. some other art forms so yes it's a, it's a it is a very nice thing to behold and we've got lots of really great examples to tell you about today yes uh, so while some stop motion animation has been quite quick and dirty it has been used as an inexpensive way to produce children's programming over the years for example though sadly we won't be talking about aforementioned plasticine penguins <laughs> noot noot uh, it is typically exceptionally time intensive and therefore often expensive it's no coincidence that many feature films using stop motion techniques are on the shorter end and well there's a wealth of shorts out there and far fewer features but, as is our want, we're with one exception, sticking to features for this episode, and the bulk of our films are from 2000 onwards. But that's for no reason other than general lack of familiarity with much that came before that, and we will be going back as far as the 1950s. Animation in general has often struggled against the rather ignorant view that it's for children, while Ray Harryhausen's dynamation was a term to describe his particular style of special effects animations, the name was really just a marketing term created by his production partner, Charles Schneer, to evade those negative connotations. The audience being both ignorant and stupid. (laughs) 
things were rather different in Eastern Europe, though, and the likes of Yisi Trinka uh, were making animated films specifically for adult audiences. And it's with the Czech legend that we start, and his 1959 film, Sena Noche Swatajansky, or in English, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Take it away, Scott. Yes, uh, Trinka is, I must confess, not an artist I was familiar with until researching this episode, by which I mean a rough Google search. So <laughs> I'm going to assume that his description as the Walt Disney of Eastern Europe means a storied and respected career dedicated to illustration, animations, and naturally directing the stop-motion work inspired by the Shakespeare piece, rather than being a weirdo that took far too much acclaim, rightly due to people doing the actual work and also ruining the copyright system forever. Although, according to that Google search, he was actually much more interested in the creation of the it's used in his works rather than the animation itself which was handled by a team of animators so perhaps it's not that far off now uh, as mentioned this is an adaptation of a midsummer's night stream this is intended to be more like a ballet performance than a stage play with a heavy focus on Vaclav trojan's music and with some narration to explain things a little and i should say that this was the czech version we watched as going by the cast list on an english language version uh, there must have been a very differently dubbed approach taken for that and why i point this out alongside the agile fact that I've never read A Midsummer's Night Dream is to say that I'm not 100% clear on what was going on in this film <laughs> or why it was going on. And for this I am thankful because I've often wondered what it must have been like to watch David Lynch's adaptation of June without having read the book first and it's probably approximate to the level of confusion and wonder that I felt during this. As such, I shan't attempt to recap the four interconnecting romance plots with the diversions to Fairyland thanks Wikipedia, of the original that I presume are present in this and instead I'll just appreciate the spectacle of the striking character designs, the intricate animation, and Vaclav Trojan's compositions. I'm not sure I'd recommend this to anyone that doesn't already have a working knowledge of the source material. Uh, my apologies for being an uncultured oaf, uh, but it's a striking film that shouldn't take the fall for my ignorance. Uh, Drew, did you make anything of this? This was... Uh... Oh, I'm going to talk about the Shakespeare part of it first. I have never either seen an adaptation of Midsummer Night's Dream but I've I've seen enough bits and pieces and heard enough bits and pieces about it and even things like university challenge questions about <laughs> Shakespeare that I know the general gist of it and that didn't help at all because I <laughs> yeah. wasn't sure why anything was happening what, um, what, what is quite striking about it though really is the production design mm-hmm. it's it doesn't look like a, like many stop motion animations I've seen, and in some ways it's certainly more simplistic. the The faces in particular, uh, they don't move and they look mm. ridiculous, and I didn't care for them at all. So I was actually quite surprised to find that his puppets were particularly well regarded for their faces, and that that was his big focus. And I'm, I'm watching this like. it's just got two big silly eyes and to um, Oberon, and they never <laughs> moved. Okay. <laughs> But yeah, it's quite striking. It's really interesting design. There's some really nice sections, and unfortunately, I only have a standard definition version. I think it would it's yeah. suffering a bit from that rather lower definition transfer because there are moments where Titania, for instance, the Queen of the Fairies, is moving around with this train of individually animated fairies. Yeah, like tiny little things behind her, and like that's fantastic. But I, I really couldn't really appreciate it. Yeah, because of the quality of the materials, which was a pity. So there's clearly a lot of talent there. And the thing is, I do think that it is relying on people already knowing the story, though, because the narrate it's 
Whereas the English language voice version you mentioned, Scott, has innovation by Richard Burton, but has all of the roles played. Yes. The yeah. Czech version only has innovation. Yeah, and a fairly sparing narration at that. Yeah, um, so <laughs> whether it's hoping that the action itself will will be the interpretation of the story and you can follow along, or whether it's hoping or assuming that its audience is quite Shakespeare literate, yeah. I, I don't know, but I think it suffers a bit for that. Whereas it worries that maybe the, the English language version might go too far the other way. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't particularly enjoy it, but there are certainly there are things in there that I found of merit, and there is for. And if you've seen a picture of Easy Trinka, he is a miserable, miserable looking man, um, which is quite strange that he's spent his life in something yeah. as um, so kind of inconsequential, really, as animation. Uh, yeah, it looks somewhere between Ron Swanson and Rip Torn, I think, <laughs> with a stomach ache. Uh, <laughs> He's, um, I mean, admittedly, I've seen a picture of him, but uh, if it's a representative picture, then it's, yeah. uh, it wouldn't look like the happiest person to be around. But there is clearly humour in here. And I know there's a lot of humour in Shakespeare, so I, some of it may be based on that. But yeah, there's uh, at the beginning when Puck is sent to the island to get the flower that makes people fall in love with each other. Yeah. And the way, like, with even just like there's some bits like Puck standing with his hands behind his back, like that's clearly um, done for humour. It works really well. Yeah. And then when the the sheep gets enamoured of him with the rose, it's like <laughs> yeah. that's actually genuinely funny. So there yeah. is some kind of lighter stuff in there. Uh, yeah, I like the little visual gags with the uh, statues falling in love as well. And yeah, that was yeah. Cool. yeah. So, yes, um, Shakespeare can sometimes seem really heavy going. And I've always wondered whether it has been just like finding it so miserable at school, but I've never really enjoyed Shakespeare very much. Yeah, I think I've got the same thing where I was kind of forced to read it at school at some point and it put yeah, me off, the experience put me off it almost for life. And yeah, that's exactly It's not it, fair, so. but I should go back to it at some point, yeah. Um, and, and I'm aware of how incredibly influential it is, not just the English-speaking world, but mm-hmm. everywhere. There's a reason that it was done in um, Czechoslovakia, as was. But it's just, uh, I don't know, I wasn't particularly engaged by the story and I don't know if that's because of the Shakespeare thing or not, but some of the set design is really interesting. And what obviously I think actually it probably shouldn't have much more than a narration is that it's clearly inspired by Bali. It's meant to be a like a balletic interpretation rather than yeah. a, a dramatic one, yeah. rather than a, an acting one. And again... I don't care much for Bali either. So, uh, you know, there's not an awful lot here for me. Yeah. But there are some really interesting sequences where there's like they've made these little stop motion puppets do quite nice Bali moves and stuff. And when you're doing it in the, the late 50s, you know, it's with yeah. considerably less technology available at the time. I'm quite impressed by that. So it's, it's certainly, um, and I know actually stop motion animation goes back to the very early days of cinema. Um, although, tends to be more shorts then it's from a historic point of view of uh animation form i absolutely love it's interesting at least yeah i mean there's a definite sliding scale of um well both budget and technical um capacity that is available to these films as we go on if we're doing this chronologically so taking into account the time it was made in it is quite remarkable uh, at the level of detail it's done even things like um, there's a there's a scene where one of the guards kind of loses his 
either his shield or his helmet and is kind of chasing it around trying to pick it up. And it's just lots of lovely little intricate bits of things that even these days would take days and days to animate. Uh, but it's even greater to appreciate it just given the, the kind of level of technology when you know what it's going to be sitting in rather than being sitting in front of what is effectively a DSLR for some of the later films we'll get to um, as opposed to, say, a large um, a, a rather larger construct that we've been dealing with back in the 50s. So, yeah, there's a lot of um, technical hurdles that would have had to be overcome to get to this level of um, intricacy with the movements and the details that I can appreciate. But, yeah, I'm pretty much on the same page as you are with the... Uh, the actual story has it's hard to get into the story when you don't know it and it's not really explaining it all that well yes. so yeah um it requires a bit of um previous work to properly enjoy this i think which is perhaps unusual given that you'd, you'd probably expect stop motion to be marketed mainly at kids and they're not going to get this unless they've read yeah. a midsummer stream before then so yeah uh, definitely one for an adult audience that's actually read the source material first and they might get something more about it than i than i did uh, but yeah I can, I can appreciate all the technical elements on board this but yeah hard to recommend anyone that doesn't know what they're getting, getting into in the first place yeah it's certainly quite opaque but just to echo what you said i'm thinking i've watched this and i'm thinking about the fact that yeah they're trying to do like single shot of time with film camera a lot trickier to do than with like, the modern way which is just using a stills camera yeah digital or otherwise that's an awful lot easier yeah uh, and then like one of the key difficulties of stop motion animation because it is so spread out because it takes so long is keeping lighting consistent yeah and I'm thinking like again I mentioned something similar the last time we talked about a Czech film which was uh, tomorrow I'll wake up and scald myself with tea yeah but certainly in the West, we have this idea that technology and things weren't that great in the Eastern Bloc, in, particularly in the 1950s. And certainly, I have this idea that the electricity supply and various other things, you know, probably weren't that steady. Yeah. I, I don't know how accurate that is. That's the impression I have from having lived in the West for my entire life. But I'm thinking 1950s Czechoslovakia, when they have to keep the lighting really consistent over months and months to do this night. That must have been quite an achievement, to, a hurdle to overcome, if I'm accurate thinking that that was, you know, not yeah. necessarily something you could rely on. <laughs> yeah. If you can't rely on consistent uh, power in California, <laughs> yeah, you know, and then now. So, but yeah, uh, it's certainly interesting. And you see it's that a lot of stop motion is that, uh, directed towards children, it certainly is, but fear not. Dear listener, in this film, in this podcast, we have at least one particular film very much not aimed at children. Um, and oh, yes. we will we'll be giving um, quite a, a range of things here. <laughs> Are you speaking of Jason the Argonauts? You're not, but that's a I'm way not, to link it to the next review. Yeah. That, that is a linking device, certainly, and I yes. will use it because I can't currently think of one. <laughs> okay. His inclusion here, when his work only made up a part of the films in which it featured may be considered something of a fudge but no discussion of stop motion could be, could be considered representative of the art form without the mention of Ray Harryhausen whose pioneering special effects work and memorable characters meant that he was often the name most associated with the films in which he worked with the film's actual director often relegated to second or lower place in the minds of the audience therefore including him in this podcast wasn't difficult but picking what to include was. Our initial thought was Clash of the Titans, probably the most famous film that he worked on. But I watched that, um, and, well, it's not great. 
Sam Worthington's performance in the terrible remake actually looks somewhat better in comparison, having now seen, <laughs> as an adult, Harry Hamlin struggling to act more realistically than any of Harryhausen's creations. <laughs> There's also not as much of Harryhausen's work in it as a lot of earlier stuff, and almost none at all in the first hour. Plus, for a 1981 film, the style felt decidedly archaic. That left any number of the Harryhausen films I remember from my childhood, usually broadcast on a bank holiday on BBC Two, or I think Channel 4 on a Sunday morning, the first springing to mind being the Sinbad trilogy. However, that would involve watching and talking about films where any number of white people have big roles, particularly that of Sinbad, you know, Sinbad the sailor from Baghdad, (laughs) and talking about Jane Seymour as an Arab, (laughs) and Tom Baker as an Arab. (laughs) So, no. (laughs) Instead, we chose 1963's Jason and the Argonauts, based on the Greek myth, and one of Ray Harryhausen's most popular films, and indeed his personal favourite. Pelias overthrows the Greek kingdom of Thessaly, killing the king and two of his children. Before she dies, one of the children pleads for help from the goddess Hera. Honor Blackman, who in this film I did not dislike, so that's a remarkable first. (laughs) And so Hera pledges to help the remaining child, Jason, to reclaim his kingdom when he's a man. At such time, Hera puts Jason in Pelias' path, though his identity is at that point unknown to Jason. Pelias is not similarly unaware of identity, though, and knowing that he cannot kill Jason by his own hand, lest he invite his own downfall, he encourages Jason and his plans to sail across the known world and capture the Golden Fleece of Colchis, a gift from the gods and symbol of kingship. To this end, Jason instructs the great shipwright Argus to build him a ship, and, well, well that's what shipwrights do, and, <laughs> and recruits a crew, among whom are Pelias' son Acastus, a saboteur, and the legendary Heracles, though here going by Hercules, his Roman name, which is unimportant, but if I didn't point out the error, I wouldn't be me. (laughs) Uh, And then begins his voyage. After that, the film follows a fairly standard swords and sandals structure, but is set apart by a score by, surprisingly, Bernard Herrmann, though weirdly it feels about 20 years out of place for a 1963 film, and, of course, Ray Harryhausen's stop-motion creatures most notable of which are the giant automaton Talos and the skeletal warriors that are commanded to defend the fleece. Stop-motion special effects can often seem quaint now, or even simply antiquated, but they were the only way to achieve a huge range of effects in films for a long time, and the best of them can be just as effective, or more, than modern techniques, in terms of entertainment anyway. CGI has created wonderful worlds and characters, but too often it's used too much and their brains shut down. There are 11 billion soldiers in this curiously medieval-style battle at the end of uh, the climax of Avengers Endgame. Nope. (laughs) That's how my mind works anyway. (laughs) One of the many, many things George Lucas doesn't seem to understand about his own films is the appeal of something that we know is really there. A butthurt Lucas, on creating a fully digital Yoda, moaned about the, well, moaning, and asked how a digital puppet was any different from a latex one. And, while we ought to be careful how much attention we pay to the complaints of Star Wars fans in general, here the moaning was justified. 
because it is different. Beyond the committed performances of Frank Oz and Mark Hamill that sold the character, Yoda was clearly a physical thing. He was there, and our brains know the difference. So it is with stop-motion special effects. That's an odd emphasis. So it is with stop-motion special effects, and while there is a huge range of quality and effectiveness, the best stuff still works in context. And I don't exaggerate when I say that, model though it is, Ed 209 still has the power to put chills through me. (laughs) And Jason the Argonauts is a fine example. Certainly the matting can be a bit ropey and inconsistent, but I'd watch the fight between the Argonauts and the skeleton warriors over the slick but soulless end of a modern superhero movie any day of the week. It's not all brilliant. The Hydra and drone man pushing polystyrene rocks as if he were a giant don't fare so well, but the tail-off section is great, and Harryhausen's design has that same quality as Star Wars C-3PO, that of the neutral face that can cause us to read emotion into it when none exists, thanks to context. In this case, in particular, a sadness and shock while the character dies. Uh, in the end, I'd say Jason Yargonauts is a very good entry point if you're new to Ray Harryhausen, and perhaps wondered why the makers of Monsters Incorporated or Corpse Bride felt compelled to acknowledge him in their films. Yes, I hadn't seen this in an awfully long time since probably I was in my before my teens. And, oh yeah, certainly. Uh, yeah, and uh, I kind of wish I'd gone back to it at some point because I really enjoyed it. It's <laughs> it's a lot of fun um, in a way that a lot of modern films just can't get seem to get a handle on. It's just fun. Um, mm-hmm. There's obviously we're mainly here to talk about Harryhausen, but even just. Uh, just before we get to that, the rest of the film around it is really well structured with nice characters who I can get behind and most of it works. It, it kind of makes sense. And the, the effects is Harryhausen stuff, for the most part, is great. I think, yeah, the, the Hydra is not perhaps his high point, but the rest of it, I think, for the most part, works incredibly well. Talos is great. I think all that sequence is, is fabulously fantastic. And the skeleton army fight is as effective as any modern bit of um, effects work that I've seen, which sounds exactly. like a strange thing to say, but it, it just actually works. You actually kind of can be suckered into the fact that there's actually a person fighting something else. Obviously, that mm-hmm. something else is not realistic because it's a skeleton, but as opposed to most modern fight sequences, which tends to be a CG representation of one person fighting a CG representation <laughs> of another person rather than two real people fighting, then it actually feels a lot more real than most modern blockbusters, which is a crazy thing to say, but that's what it is. It works really well, and the effects actually enhances the story yep. greatly. Um, yeah, I hugely enjoyed this, and was uh, really enjoyed going back to this film. Can't think what else to add that would just be repeating what you're already saying there, Drew. Um, this uh, uh, Harryhausen's work, uh, particularly in this one, uh, if this is his favourite, then this uh, is uh, a fairly worthy candidate of it. I enjoyed all of this. Uh, there's a few oddities to the the pieces as a whole. Um, it strays a bit from the uh, source material, but then again, Greek myths are always kind of loose in terms of what you can be used to interpret from so I don't think that's really huge, too much of an issue and uh, yeah, there's obviously a lot of ADR. Um, I, I didn't actually realise that the actor that's playing Jason was, his voice actor is completely different to his physical actor the, Yeah, I the, found that out this afternoon Yeah, I, I did not realise that at all, I think in part because basically the entire script as far as I can tell, everything in it is ADR so it all sounds a bit 
it doesn't sound like it's obviously desynced from his voice because everyone else is doing it as well, even the person that yeah. was you know, voice acting and physical actor were the same, so I didn't actually notice it. I, I, that was something I learned the other day there as I was looking up this film. Um, I hadn't realised that at all, and uh, quite a sad tale to that uh, actor, now I come to think about it, so we'll focus on that. Um, but yeah, um, as a film, Jason Ergnotz uh, was... A, a lot of fun to revisit, and I would heartily recommend that anyone who hasn't seen it already um, give it a go. And it's a great family film as well. I um, want to introduce the kids to, I think, as well, who will appreciate this a lot. Yeah. Heartily yeah, th- this is definitely going down as a very pleasant surprise. Mm-hmm. Because I know, I watched it for the special effects, for the Ray Harryhausen stuff, um, and I couldn't really tell you exactly which character was in which thing I, I have memories of so much Ray Harryhausen stuff from my childhood yeah. um, and it, it is the characters that stand out uh, yeah. and if you'd asked me a week ago to like tell you which film the Skeleton Warriors were in I would probably <laughs> have told you Clash of the Titans yeah. Just, so it's um, they're all kind of muddled like I wouldn't have known which one was which um, yeah. like I, I knew that The Rock as ROC um, not Wayne Johnson <laughs> uh, was in the Sinbad films because that's from Sinbad but beyond that I, I wouldn't have known Yeah. so now watching this actually it's quite good because it, it's a coherent story and yeah. the fact it's and like the, the characters do make sense in this in some of them they're a bit more scattershot because yeah. um, there are Greek things in the Sinbad things and there's also Kali the Hindu goddess in one of the Sinbad films as well because <laughs> yeah. it's like Picking and choosing what they like, yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> and um, you were saying about the like straying a bit from the Greek myth, but at the same time, it's that's from originally an oral tradition, and there mm-hmm. are probably a dozen at least different versions of any given Greek myth. Yeah, there's no canonical version because no one person wrote them, so it doesn't really matter that it's not quite how it was like spoken about three thousand years ago. Yeah. <laughs> but the, one of the reasons that Ray Harryhausen thinks that people like it um, so much is because it's like one of the most complete films, which I, I think is fair too, because it, it has a story, beginning, middle, end. It does actually have a conclusion, even mm. though it's kind of like a, and maybe more things will happen now at the end of it. Yeah. It does feel um, that where it's like other films of his seem to be a bit more be messy. Say films of his, they're not his films. That's the thing. Yes. He didn't direct any of them. <laughs> Yeah, um, he just did the special effects work on them, but it's him that gets remembered. I, I, I've watched this now. I've researched Jason the Argonist now. I still can't tell you the directors. I've forgotten again for like the fourth <laughs> time today. But, but yeah, it's it's really fun. It's it's definitely safe for the family, and yeah, like where you can see it, like the skeleton warriors, modern technology would allow that to be more cleanly matted, yeah. and that's the only change I would want to make. Because those characters have character. Yes. And it feels... and it's like Suspension of disbelief is a difficult term to use in this because I'm never thinking, oh, well, that's real. <laughs> but th- they're so in the film and so good that it's like not like I'm thinking, oh, that's really there. It's more like, I know it's not there. I don't care. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, there's just so much fun. So this is a really pleasant surprise because I was like, thinking, I'll right, oh, we'll talk about that and like... Is this one of the films that has the wee dinosaurs? That's perhaps one of the more famous Ray Harryhausen things is the the dinosaurs portrayed as it used to be before scientists and archaeologists wised up and that they don't actually stand up right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like fighting each other and 
that's kind of like thing, just to think about that sort of thing. But no, actually, as it works as a whole, and then the special effects, as they should do in the best of stuff, help to tell the story. Yeah. And aren't a thing in their own, even though they are very memorable, of course, because they're so distinctive, but they're actually doing the right thing. They're telling the story. Yes. And it's a very enjoyable story. Yeah, survived a few thousand years and this yeah. didn't ruin it, so well done. <laughs> well done to all involved. <laughs> okay, um, well, let's um, jump forward 30 years. Um, that's, yes. that's quite the leap there. To a film that, despite all the naming and all the marketing, isn't directed by the person that everybody thinks it's directed by, which seems to be really, really unfair to poor old Henry Selick. <laughs> so Scott, Tim Burton's not Tim Burton's The Nightmare Over Christmas, not by Tim Burton. <laughs> yes, what's this? What's this? Well, I'm asking questions around here, bud. Uh, in The Nightmare Before Christmas, Jack Skellington, the Pumpkin King, is fresh off another highly successful round of scares as Halloween draws to a close, but plaudits from his fellow Halloween town residents cannot bring him joy, just ennui. Going for a meditative stroll, he stumbles across the wondrous Christmas town, a jolly place ruled over by the dreaded Sandy Claus. Greatly enamoured with the place, and finding it unfair that the elves get all the fun, he determines to take over the holiday this year, roping in the rest of the horrific residents of Nightmare Town to help as best they can, given their limited understanding of the concept of a Christmas. So, that ultimately goes as well as you might expect. As long as what you expect is a great selection of songs, gags, and striking characters design. Um, as, as you mentioned there, well, Harry Selick directs. It's styled as Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, primarily because, well... Look at it. This is pretty much what I'd expect an anthropomorphized version of the inside of Tim Burton's head to look like, and indeed he functions more as an executive director here than a traditional producer role. Uh, that said, it's perhaps Danny Elfman who has the strongest voice in the film, both in terms of the soundtrack and, more literally, has the singing voice of Jack Skellington. Uh, I don't think I'll belabor the point of this review too much. Uh, these days, this is widely, and in my opinion, rightly regarded as a classic, both Halloween and Christmas, and remains a greatly enjoyable watch with its inventive story, great voice and vocal performances, clever, funny songs, and beautiful animation. I endorse this film. <laughs> um, yeah, didn't want to get into too much. I, I think the kind of audience we have is probably familiar with The Nightmare Before Christmas quite quite a bit. Um, it's really good. It's really funny. It's really lovingly designed. It looks great. Um, yes, I like it an awful lot. And the songs are very, very funny indeed. Uh, Drew, what do you make of it? Largely the same, Scott. It's it's just a fun film. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul was saying a bit before, it's just that I just kind of feel that Tim Burton stole a lot of Henry Selick's credit. When yeah. he did the hard work and Tim Burton did not want to be involved with the... The painstaking day-to-day involvement of, of moving things very slowly, taking a picture, moving things very slowly, taking yes, another picture. Yeah. But was happy to take all of the credit, you know, and all yeah. the acclaim. I mean, he wrote a three-page poem that this is based on. That's, <laughs> you know, it had nothing to do with the script around this, so it's not really a strongly Tim Burton film. Yeah. Like, yes, I see it, it has a Tim Burton-y sort of feel to it, certainly, but he wasn't that involved. That's, it kind of bothers me that he's yeah. like the person <laughs> associated with that. That aside, though, it's just, it's really, really fun. And you've hit on the key thing for this film is Danny Elfman. Yeah. He clearly, clearly just had fun with this. He's He said that it's basically the easiest thing he's ever yeah, written, yeah. the music for this. <laughs> yeah. I just, I mean, I, he just got it and then he had fun, right? Because the songs are catchy and it's all just playing with the, the whole Halloween theme and kind of kid-friendly horror stuff. 
Yeah. And it's just, it's so fun. There's just an incredible sense of fun in the songs. Like, like lines, verses like, you know, kidnap the Sandy Claus. I'm not going to try and sing because, you know, I don't hate you <laughs> listeners or you, Scott. Uh, kidnap the Sandy Claus. Tie him in a bag. Throw him in the ocean. Then see if he is sad. Kidnap the Sandy Claus. Throw him in a box. Bury him for 90 years. Then see if he talks. I just find that stuff so fun. Um, and then the kind of slightly gruesome other, other gruesome aspects. They're like, this is a thing called a present. The whole thing starts with a box. A box? Is it steel? Are there locks? Is it filled with a box? A box? How delightful. A box. It's just, the whole film is just full of... Can it just? It's just fun. The, the lyrics are so fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just a joy to watch. It's um, and I mean, how many films at all, let alone a Disney animation, get a cover soundtrack like fifteen years after the fact, with <laughs> the most disparate array of musicians you can imagine, from Marlon Manson to Polyphonic Spree, Sparker Horse, and Rodrigo y Gabriela. <laughs> That's crazy. And actually also worth listening to, in particular the Marilyn Manson version of This Is Halloween is great. Yes. It's, it's, it's <laughs> kind of so knowingly, kind of over-the-top, yeah. um, metal-y kind of version of it that works really well with the lyrics. Yeah. To be fair, if the night before Christmas was a person, it would probably be Marilyn Manson. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just so much fun. Yeah, there's a reason why. I mean, the the character design is great, and you know, it's a very very simple design. The face of Jack Skellington. Yeah, but it's so distinctive. Um, and Disney probably love that for the merchandising. Yeah, but it's just it's just a genius design. And then everything else in it is so. I can see there's just such a sense of fun to the film, and it is. It's got rightfully a classic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's so distinctive looking. I would say if there's a point to the an overarching theme to our podcast, it's bashing Disney. And just come back to that point again. Um, apparently, this, <laughs> this this got released under Touchstone as well because Disney were afraid that'd be a bit too scary for kids. Which just shows that the people at Disney do not understand what kids are and what kids do and what kids like. That this is absolutely wonderful for kids because kids always love the kind of weird, slightly. I mean, it's not actually scary. It's just a little bit gruesome, and uh, it's really funny. And I, I, kids love this sort of stuff, and I don't understand why Disney couldn't see that this is obviously something they should put all of their arrows behind and uh, push to the moon and as such this when this came out I think it it didn't exactly bomb but it didn't set the world on fire and it's really only uh, since its home releases that it kind of became the success that it should have been from the start and uh, yeah mm-hmm. uh, I don't understand that decision at all it's uh, it's clearly a great work of art and I love it uh, yeah fantastic stuff <laughs> Disney resisted it for ages um and I've spoken in other episodes about how much disdain I have for Disney, so I'm not going to get into it, but you know, <laughs> Disney can do one. <laughs> Unfortunately, if Disney do one, we'll never get a film again because they own all films now, right? <laughs> That's pretty much the case, yes. But do they own the works of Ardman Studios? That'll work. That'll do. Go with it. Talk about chicken wings. <laughs> <laughs> Ardman Animations are one of the biggest names in stop-motion animation, particularly if you hail from these shores. From the morph shorts that I mentioned earlier, to the mockumentary Creature Comforts, and of course the world-famous duo of Wallace and Gromit. But for the Claymation Standard Bearers entry into this podcast, we have selected their first feature-length film, 2000's Chicken Run. A pastiche of several POW escape dramas, 
most notably The Great Escape and Escape of the Birdman, along with numerous other film references, Chicken Run sees the poultry of Tweedy's farm, led by Julia Sawala's Ginger, attempt to liberate themselves before a lack of egg production sees another prisoner sent to the pot. The stakes are raised when Miranda Richardson's fearsome Mrs Tweedy decides to modernise the farm, increasing productivity and changing the output from eggs to chicken pies. Suddenly, everyone's necks are on the line, and escape becomes an even more pressing matter. Serendipity lands in her midst, in the form of Mel Gibson's Rocky Roads, a flying rooster who, it seems, is the answer to their prayers. What their prayers are, or are too, is not covered, the theology of poultry being a matter <laughs> Ardman decided not to address. While Rocky recovers from an injury and teaches the chickens how to fly, others try to sabotage the fearsome new pie machine, which is absolutely not a recycled idea from a close shave, you hear? <laughs> in order to buy them more time. Rocky may not be all he seems, however, and an alternative plan to build a plane, like a powered version of the coldest cock, is put into action. After being so disappointed a couple of years ago by Early Man, and particularly because while watching Early Man, I found myself thinking, Artman really has a distinctive style. And it's this style, and only ever this style. <laughs> I was a little worried about watching Chicken Run again, fearing I would find the very familiar visuals wearisome. I needn't have feared, though. While I maintain my criticism of contemporary argument for not trying something different, the biggest problem with Early Man was content, not style, and that's not a problem that Chicken Run shares. Indeed, the instantly recognisable look of Ardman characters is even a boon here, highlighting their great knack of creating humour and conveying emotion simply through the movement of those big, shiny eyeballs. If there's a problem with Chicken Run, beyond the problematic presence of Mel Gibson's in anything nowadays, <laughs> it's that it can skirt the line of being a reference comedy a little too often, which is the sort of thing that can really quickly date a film and make it stale. For the most part, though, it stays just on the right side of that, and can certainly be enjoyed without knowledge of the POW films to which it pays homage. And that fairly well-worn POW story has given new life simply due to being played out by your dinner. <laughs> and well it's got a good few chicken based jokes in the mix too and while you're enjoying it a part of your brain will no doubt be marvelling at the enormous amount of work and technical skill involved especially when several scenes have multiple moving characters not to mention the action sequences the filming of the animation produced one that's one <laughs> minute of film per week <laughs> Stop motion animation production is not for those in a hurry. Yes, I, I'm actually not sure I've seen Chicken Run before watching this for the podcast. Um, if I have done, uh, it was so long ago, I've completely forgotten everything about it, and I don't think I have because I think a lot of this is actually pretty memorable. Uh, it's really good. I was actually a little bit surprised because uh, we this mainly made the list, if we're honest, because well, when we're talking about it, was because we wanted to put Arben in here and. Well, perhaps the uh, feature-length Wallace and Gromit one wasn't the strongest of those lot. Um, but I was surprised to find myself enjoying Chicken Run quite so much. It's really quite funny. Um, and it, I think it survives being a reference comedy a little bit because, I mean, the films that it's referencing are so far away from contemporary. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I don't know if it's just... I, I do wonder how well it would play outside of the UK because I, I don't know if it's the same everywhere else, but the, the, the Great Escape was like the was shown on TV so much Christmas times and, and so on throughout 
all the time I was grown up. Um, it, it's not the same these days, of course. The media landscape is very different, but for a generation plus of British people, um, the, the Great Escape is such a cultural touchstone that parodying it with chickens is just an obvious <laughs> win for everyone. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it helps that you know, I think it stands by itself as just being very funny. And uh, uh, say the, the animation and the, the character detail, the you know, distinctive Arben look works really well, um, surprisingly enough for chickens. Um, there's, I don't know if it's just like, maybe it's the most anime of the stop motion. Um, there is, it's just some of those kind of big eyes and the expressions that they can get from those that they kind of make it, the, the kind of heightened expressions they get that kind of suits really well uh, this kind of stuff that they do and the material that they do and um, yeah it, it all kind of works together very well and I enjoy chicken wrong an awful lot it's really quite funny and as you say lots of great chicken gags so yes uh, um, actually a joy to watch and something that I hope I will come back to um, in future uh, yeah I'm as I say for, for pretty much the first run through this for me I enjoyed it a great deal and I'm sure there's a hell of a lot of detail that I'll be able to pick up on and sort of hidden jokes in the background that I probably didn't pick up on the first run uh, through so I'll be happy to come back to this again in a, in a few months maybe um but yeah because armin's great for this kind of thing of hi- little hidden details and jokes and in mm-hmm. the background that you'd that kind of really rewards you watching so i'm actually looking forward to watching this again so yes um uh, yeah heartily recommend this as i have done for pretty much everything and will do for both all everything going forward so yes very much enjoyed it and uh you should watch it if you have not done so already and also yeah. everything else armin's done apart possibly from the stuff you mentioned about early man which i've not quite got to myself so yeah yeah it's early man was just such a disappointment um it's not like we're not saying that curse of the were rabbit was bad it's just it's not as good as the other wallace and gromit stuff yes taint um, the wrong trousers so so since we're with features we have a check on it i'm really glad we did because i thoroughly enjoyed this this time and also bossy julia sawala is the best julia sawala Yes. Something I've known since I was nine and press gang started. <laughs> yes. And also American Dexter Fletcher's the best Dexter Fletcher? Well, that might be the case, I'm not sure. But yeah. Well, where did you mention that, Scott? Because I'm watching this thinking, they've got Mel Gibson in here. I was like, wouldn't it have been great if they just got Dexter Fletcher doing his American accent <laughs> from press gang again to be that American character? That would have been so good. I think that would have worked, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, probably would have got to the box office that it did because I think Chicken Run is still the number one top grossing stop motion animation right. and um, I think that's probably a lot to do with uh, Mel Gibson's star power yeah. certainly at the time in the year 2000 yeah. that would have helped attract a lot of people to it but it should have been Dexter Fletcher basically doing Spike from Press Guy again and that would have made me at least very happy and yes. really isn't that what it's all about <laughs> we're moving back to the United States again though this time Warner Brothers rather than uh, Disney but with the same person involved and my same doubts about quite how much of the actual directing Mr. Burton did again, given he had a co-director here. But another <laughs> distinctly Tim Burton-looking film, Scott the Corpse Pride. Or yes. rather, Corpse Pride. There was no the... Yes. See, right, everything I said about The Nightmare About Christmas, basically that again... <laughs> Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Furthermore, I consider that Carthage must be destroyed. Um, well, <laughs> if you must, uh, in the Corpse Bride, uh, in Corpse Bride, co-directed it's by... It's hard your to say t- without a, a definite article, yes. isn't it? <laughs> yes, it really is. Uh, which, as you mentioned, co-directed by your Timothy Burton, Esquire, and also stop-motion expert and Nightmare Before Christmas veteran, uh, Mike Johnston, we learned the importance of not accidentally marrying a corpse when Victor... <laughs> <laughs> 
It's a lesson we have to learn again and again or we just won't let it stick. Yes. And if we do not learn from history, we're doomed to repeat these mistakes for eternity. Uh, yes. When Victor, the heir to a fishmongery empire, has a marriage arranged to Victoria, scion of the, the bankrupt aristocratic Everglots, the family's looking for a trade of money and status, their children's happiness be damned. Unexpectedly, given the setup, the kids seem to quite like each other. However, the pressure of the dress rehearsal on poor shy Victor sees him running off into the woods to recuperate and practice his vows, where said marital accident happens, and he finds himself hitched to Emily, the titular corpse bride, and taken off to the underworld with its requisite spooky undead, which Victor seeks to escape. Back in the land of the living, the shock of Victor's disappearance is short-lived as the Everglots find an apparently suitable, if obviously evil, marriage candidate in the mysterious Lord Marcus, who may or may not have murdered his previous fiancée, who may or may not have been Emily, which may or may not be a spoiler, for which I may or may not be sorry. Looking back at my review of some 15 years ago, I am struck by how damn old I am, and also by my comment that, essentially, I was expecting or wanting a longer film. Film serving sizes having ballooned since then, I don't feel that same way now. <laughs> Although I would add that I enjoy the corpse bride so much that I would certainly not complain were there an additional quarter hour or so where it is good with the rest of it, which, for the avoidance of doubt, is very good indeed. It's very much taking the Nightmare Before Christmas's ball and running with it, and there's not a damn thing wrong with that. I shall fall back on my previously written assertion that Corpse Bride delivers a sharply written, punchy and funny script with good vocal performances and an abstract, fluid, effective animation style, and as is something of a theme of this episode, I recommend it highly. Yes, really liked it again. I'm happy to come back and watch this again. Um, I hadn't done so in the last 15 years, and I really should have done because it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Really enjoyable yeah. show. Um, it's been a while, but I have revisited it more recently than yourself, Scott. But it's it's really enjoyable. And um, as far as we go on, just, uh, I will be recommending everything in this episode, <laughs> uh, even a Midsummer Night's Dream, just at least for the historical interest. Yes. Um, but yeah, this is the music is definitely not quite as good as the Nightmare Before Christmas. There's no numbers as catchy for sure, but uh, yeah. No. But the the opening number though, I've I've loved from the moment I first heard it. I've listened mm. to it so many times. I got the album not long after this came out, and it's once again Danny Elfman just clearly having fun because yeah, yeah. the 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 line like, and who would have guessed in a million years that her daughter with her face of an otter in disgrace <laughs> would provide her <laughs> ticket to her rightful place? That's a brilliant rhyme, and also. I could have like sat for a hundred years and not come up with the line "our daughter with her face of an otter in disgrace." <laughs> does it have? Does it mean anything? No. Is it brilliant? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so this one is a bit more about the actual spoken performances because so much of the night before Christmas is singing. Yeah, and it's great. Albert Finney is so good in basically everything because uh, Albert Finney was great. Yeah, um, and he's clearly having a lot of fun here. I don't. I've never cared much for Joanna Lumley. But she fits the role, so that's fine. Yeah. Richard E. Grant, always villainous. Yes. Even when he's yeah. not playing a villain, he sounds like a villain. Yes. <laughs> and I like Richard E. Grant a lot. And then perhaps my favourite um, role is Paul Whitehouse, who's like halfway <laughs> to Alf, his Alf Git character from Harry Enfield and Chums here. <laughs> yes. And it's just, it's so great. It's, it's this slightly browbeaten um, husband who's not quite sure what's going on and doesn't want to say the wrong thing in case his wife shouts at him. Yeah. 
what I like about it is that he more or less says what he wants to say anyway, but he just kind of gets ignored. Uh- <laughs> yeah, it's, it's why I said they're not listening to her. Um, if she hears anything she doesn't like, she pretends she hasn't heard it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the only thing I want to mention about this film, other than that you should watch it if you're not familiar with it, because the, the animation is fantastic. It's they actually clearly the the puppets have come on a bit from Nine Before Christmas. This is more what you see in a lot of stuff going forward is silicone puppets. Yeah. Um, which is a lot, lot more detail. Uh, yeah, a lot more. Um, yeah. There's a lot more work in the background as well, I think, as compared to something like um, Night Before Christmas, which yeah. helps kind of build it as a sort of world, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's. It does, I don't think the. The silicone stuff has quite the charm of yeah. claymation stuff of plasticine, but yeah. it's um, it, you can get a lot more nuance in things, and and something we'll come to shortly. That you have almost kind of realistic looking parts of things. Yeah. The other thing I'm saying is like we did. I mentioned during Chicken Run about the reference comedy thing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you find a reference, and they're like, "I'm really circled as to like why they thought that was a good idea." I mean, it doesn't take away from it, but the Jiminy Cricket, like it was described by the co-director, a Jiminy Cricket-like conscience that Emily has in her head, <laughs> yeah. which is a, a maggot, voiced to sound like and made to look like Peter Lorre. Yeah, I know Peter Lorre from the years of like studying film and like just like you can pick it up. But by the twenty o five, the Robin Williams Peter Lorre impression in Aladdin in nineteen ninety two was out a bit of date. Dated, yeah. <laughs> So why it's in here, I have no idea. I mean, the character works for what it has to do, but it's like, I'm watching this thinking, who out of the general audience for this is going to know what on earth that's supposed to be? Yeah, I I swing back and forth to that one. I mean, obviously it's a, a reference that I think a lot of what this film would have been targeted to is never going to get. But at the same time, it's also just a really funny voice. So I suppose yeah. it works on that basis anyway. Even if you don't it's, know what the references to, it still works. So I'll let it slide. For, for the same reason that Peter Lorre's voice became famous anyway, it's kind of <laughs> slightly because he was like Hungarian, but in like a lot of US stuff, and that was like Fritz Lang things. But mm-hmm. that's quite a distinctive voice that kind of sounds out of place and unusual. And yeah. it's, it's a distinctive way of speaking. So yeah, it, it works as a kind of an odd thing within the course ride. But absolutely, like 95% of the people watching this are going to have no idea what that's meant to be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it's not the wrong kind of like, reference in that it doesn't detract from the film at all. It's not like you, you need to get something from that and need to understand it to get it. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's like, wow, that's dated. <laughs> I don't know. Um, if, if people want to keep catering to the old fart audience, which I identify <laughs> with, I'm okay with that. So let's move on then. Just a year. In fact, we're making our jumps much smaller as we go on. <laughs> to Peter and the Wolf. I have a strange origin story for Peter and the Wolf. Peter and the Wolf first came to my attention when it was given away free by Apple in one of their iTunes 12 Days of Christmas promotions. Though, as it was given away four days after they gave away the James Gordon vehicle Lesbian Vampire Killers, <laughs> you can imagine I wasn't immediately hopeful. <laughs> This is the only short we're covering on this episode, but I wanted to include it because, despite its unfortunate proximity in my mind to that other film, (laughs) I did watch it, and I found it particularly striking. And also because it has no dialogue, and is instead 
as you may have guessed from the name, an interpretation of Sergei Prokofiev's symphonic fairy tale. If you're not familiar with how that goes, Peter is a lonely young boy who lives with his grandfather in the forest and his only friend is a duck. Uh, Against his grandfather's wishes, he leaves the safety of the fencing property one day to play in the frozen pond with the duck, another bird and his grandfather's cat. Then a wolf of the big bad variety comes along and gobbles the duck, fulfilling the purpose of both wolves and ducks. (laughs) Peter feels somewhat differently, of course, what with the duck being his friend, so enlists the help of the bird to capture the wolf, to the amazement of the locals. While this adaptation changes a few details, that's more or less it. But the narrative is not the main focus here. Rather, it is the compelling visuals and the synchronisation with Prokofiev's music. And boy are the visuals good. It's one of, if not the, best looking stop motion animations I've ever seen. With a level of detail probably only matched by Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs. The character models are simply fantastic identifiably Slavic, with extremely expressive faces and passably human-looking skin, while never quite trying to be a facsimile. For instance, the attention paid to the grandfather's skin and the wrinkles in his neck is astonishing, with similar detail levels seen in the rusty doors of his ladder, amongst other things. Peter and Rolf is just a beautiful thing. And if there's a downside, it's simply that the visuals could be perhaps more tightly tied to the music. It certainly made me very enthusiastic to check out more of the work of Semaphore, the Polish animation studio that produced Peter and the Wolf, of which there is, happily, a lot, and the British director, Susie Templeton, of which there is, sadly, little. Yes, I share an origin story with you for this. Um, <laughs> uh, the difference being that although I got it as part of that 12 Days of Christmas um, extravaganza back in, what, 45 years ago, I think it was? Um, Um, 2009, so... Yes, 45, 46 years ago. 47 years ago, that was... um, Yeah, I I hadn't watched it until two days ago. And uh, (laughs) I'm... Much the much the lesser person for not having done it. Yeah, it's really great. Um, won't spend too much time echoing what you said on it and say that yes, the detail on this is absolutely superb. I mean, everything we've spoken about to this date uh, and the rest of this podcast, they've all been incredibly impressive technical achievements and uh, incredibly detailed stuff. But yeah, this is uh, perhaps a level above it. Uh, just the, the amount of work that's gone into producing this is just absolutely remarkable, and it's just. Stunning to watch, um, yeah, really great stuff. And um, yeah, obviously, I, I knew Peter and the Wolf as a musical beast, but I didn't really understand until I did a bit of digging about this the the, the way that it would have been shown, the way that it kind of would have been um, like narrated as a, a, a kind of fairy tale to an audience with the the music in the background, kind of digging through it and that sort of thing, which I've I've never sort of seen or experienced. So that would also be uh, kind of interesting. But uh, this film is a a very enjoyable um, alternative for that and the visuals of this of course are absolutely remarkable and the music is uh, well obviously classic that's why it's called classical right <laughs> um yeah um, that's how yeah so that's how it works uh, yeah so th- that kind of stuff just marries really well uh, it's a great kind of recontextualization of a an art form um, into the kind of film era and yes yeah, uh, just just really a, a quite a tremendous piece of work and i enjoyed it immensely 
not much more to say about it than that. But yes, as as with everything else, definitely recommended and something you should carve out the what's this half an hour um, to see. Yeah. yeah, great stuff, great stuff. Yeah, one of those films that won an Oscar that was absolutely deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> animated short tends to be one of those ones that actually goes to worthwhile stuff. Yeah, um, weirdly. <laughs> Yeah, I was a bit like you, Scott. I was kind of under the impression that I mean, I've I've been aware of Peter Neville for for most of my life, I think. Yeah. Um, and I always thought that that the way the music played to tell the story was a bit more like, say, like calls the planets, where like give us like an idea of the how a planet is meant to feel. Like it's yeah. How it's interpreted and like um, it's a vague suggestion rather than an actual story. Yeah. yeah or like <laughs> Camille Sanson's the Carnival of the Animals. Mm-hmm. Where you can see where they're going, like the the different music they use and the instruments and how they played, like you can see, you can understand the the idea that they're going for with that. Um, and I hadn't realised until preparing for this actually that the way that as well as like, being a way to teach children about musical instruments and stuff yeah. was that actually it was meant to be done with a a narration. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, they just basically just switched the visuals for a, a narrator here. Um, and it's really effective. Yeah, yeah, beautifully detailed and a beautiful, de- beautiful film. Yeah, well worth looking at. Absolutely. Right. Now, I mentioned earlier that. Well, first of all, I mentioned the fact that back in uh, the times of Dynamation, that very many audiences thought that animation was a a thing for children. That is, despite so many examples proven and wrong, it's something that some people still feel. As animation is still fighting against and I also mentioned that we were coming up to a film that was very much not for children yes um, this is it and uh, yeah I don't know why I stopped there I have no idea what I was going to say Scott, <laughs> Mary and Max Yes, Mary and Max was, I believe, our shared favourite film seen at the EI Edinburgh International Film Festival back in 2009. And at mm-hmm. the risk of spoiling the result of this review, nothing has happened in intervening years <laughs> to make you reconsider that opinion. Starting in 1976, a neglected and bullied eight-year-old Mary Daisy Dinkle of Victoria, Australia, starts a pen-friend relationship with a randomly selected name from a phone book, that being Max Jerry Horowitz who has just as many problems, from his uncontrollable and unconventional eating habits, to his inability to connect with and understand people, which, as it turns out, is due to his later diagnosed Asperger's syndrome. Uh, This film follows their ongoing correspondence and the anxiety attacks that they provoke in Max over the course of Mary's childhood and early adulthood. Both of their lives are eventful in a quiet, realistic and slightly depressing sense and makes for a very human, identifiable and sympathetic narrative. Even in an episode where nearly everything we're speaking of is quite densely packed with gags, this stands out as being extremely densely packed with gags, both visual and auditory. It's an exceedingly sharply scripted uh, script uh, with terrific deliveries from Philip Seymour Hoffman and Barry Humphreys in particular. And this is perhaps an odd thing to say about a film that deals so heavily with neglect, addiction, loneliness, anxiety and suicide. But that's really the film's genius. Uh, As you mentioned, Drew, I don't think we really need to re-legislate the animation can be adults and deal with adult films discussion again. But if anyone was wavering on the point, I would direct them to Mary and Max, which deals with said themes sensitively and highly entertainingly. In an episode full of films I enjoyed immensely, I enjoyed this immensely <laughs> if you haven't seen it, you really ought to. And I suspect a lot of people haven't. This was not a huge success by any stretch of the, the word, but 
it's just incredible. I, I watched it again and I was blown away by how just how densely packed the script is. It's an absolute marvel. And uh, yeah, the, the animation, of course, and all that stuff. The I mean, it, it goes to said, if you've made it into this episode, the technical side of things is beyond reproach. And it looks absolutely great here. It's some really funny visuals, some really incredibly scripted performances, great gags. It's very funny. And as I say, it's dealing with the most adult content you can imagine. I've, I've only mentioned about half of the um, themes that it brings up uh, during the course of its work, but it does so in just such a, a relatable and human fashion and is managing to deal with all of that very sensitively and really entertainingly humanistically sensitively just a really wonderful film I enjoy this an awful lot i was so glad to come back to this again uh just a great film and uh yeah 2009's film of the year most probably um i can't remember if i said anything was better than that but yes it's it's just a great film and if you've not seen it already definitely get on by that yeah um I think I've made it clear before that um, I'm not, in general, a big fan of narration of films. I sometimes feel that it's lazy. Yeah. In this film, absolutely not. This is very much one of the exceptions because the narration works because, I think Barry Humphrey's delivery of it is particularly good, but Mm. because of the way it's written. Because it's written like a children's story. Yes. And that (laughs) is genius. Yeah. Of like, so like, if you're an adult, obviously you understand what it means, but it's funny and kind of clever. And like, it's like how a child might misunderstand things and not maybe not understand what the word was that was said. Yeah, yeah. And then send their imagination down a completely different path, <laughs> um, leading to confusion and humour. And it's it's so good. It's so beautiful, despite being fifty percent brown and fifty percent grey. <laughs> it's such a vibrant and beautiful film. I mentioned in my introduction that one of the appeals of stop motion animation can very often be the just that general appeal of big things in miniature. Yeah. And something like, say, Peter and the Wolf is very much just like it's a really detailed miniature of a thing. Not one hundred percent, but like going quite close to being very, very like the real thing. Yeah. Whereas Mary and Max is kind of like the caricature version of miniatures. Of a, of a thing in miniature um, and it's just it's got the most wonderful backdrop like the the mailbox looking like a koala that has been surprised from behind <laughs> <laughs> and then our little shrinkies or little um, things of jewellery she makes from crisp packets and stuff it's just there was so much heart in this film and that it's actually in a number of ways it's making me think of the film we're going to finish with but it deals with some really serious issues in a very calm and gentle way yeah which is i think just the way to do it a lot of the time and i miss philip seymour hoffman yeah, <laughs> yeah. every time i watch this i think that cause i've watched this numerous times since i love this one it's just it, it's so wonderful it's got so much heart in it and i don't mind admitting that the end of it makes me cry every time <laughs> yeah just that scene in the apartment it's like oh yeah, yeah. It's just so good, and it's one of those films that you just want to oh, cry because not enough people have seen it. Yeah, it's it really deserves to be seen by so many more people because it's so good. I mean, if you want to take any one film away from this film, this podcast episode you should watch. It's all of them, um, <laughs> but particularly but, this one, yeah. But particularly this one, yes. Um, all of these are equal, but some of them are more equal than others. <laughs> but no, really, all of them. Um, and this one twice, that was it. Yeah. 
can I think of a linking device? Shall we move on then to the Little Prince? That's a rubbish linking device. I mean, it, it's effective, but it's rubbish. It's a link, not a device. One of these days, Scott, will manage good <laughs> linking devices for everything. Preferably full of puns, but good would be the main criteria. Like Jason and the Argonauts, Mark Osborne's The Little Prince features stop-motion animation for only a portion of its running time. And, like Jason, it's used as a special effect. But the effect, and why it's special, is very different indeed. Based on the world-famous novella Le Petit Prince by French author and aviator Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, The Little Prince tells the story of a little girl, voiced in the English version by Mackenzie Foy, who we first meet as she tries to earn a place at the prestigious Worth Academy, whose goal is to make sure that the children grow up to be essential. Failing her interview, her mother then relocates them to within the school's catchment zone to force them to accept her. But to do this, she has to buy a house whose affordability is, well, afforded by its proximity to the rather ramshackle house next door. In this house the only one for miles around with any character, lives the Aviator, voiced by Jeff Bridges, an old, eccentric and lonely man whose rather atypical form of greeting his new neighbours is to accidentally smash a hole in their wall with a propeller (laughs) after he attempts to start his biplane in his back garden. Most people settle for a basket of muffins. (laughs) The mother isn't overly impressed by this. But the little girl's curiosity finds her drawn to learn more about the aviator, particularly after he sends her some pages, modelled after Saint-Exupéry's own handwritten manuscript, of a story about a little prince. She enters the aviator's garden, so different from the impeccably manicured but anodyne gardens of all the others in the neighbourhood, and befriends him, listening, enthralled, as he begins to tell her of the prince, his lone life on asteroid B612, his love for a rose, and his adventures across space after he left her. They become fast friends, and even accomplices. But the little girls, she has no other name, intensive study plan for beginning school starts to suffer, or, rather more accurately, being neglected entirely, until the friendship is forcibly ended by her mother after running with the police. The everyday world of the girl is, in the first two acts, deliberately boring. 3D computer animated in a competent but unremarkable way. Indistinguishable, except in the environs of the aviator's house, from a hundred other films. But the world of the prince is where the magic lies. A beautifully realised stop-motion interpretation of Saint-Exupéry's distinctive illustrations. Utterly charming and wonderfully tactile. Even more so thanks to its juxtaposition with the super clean computer animation. Things are more real and have more texture in the imagination, particularly that of a child. That juxtaposition works well, and it's a lovely and charming film. But the downside is that the whole film isn't in the prince's world, as I would have loved to spend the whole running time in stop motion. It's beautiful. And if you're familiar with the book, you'll see just how much of the essence of the author's illustrations the puppets have, while being their own, much more substantial thing. We've talked before about the casting of big, or at least big-ish name actors in voiceover roles, and how it isn't necessary and is often ill-advised, as voice acting is a different skill from acting to camera. But here, at least, Jeff Bridges is a wonderful choice for the aviator with Paul Rudd also working well as the older version of The Prince. I wonder if there's a little inside joke there too, 
in casting Paul Rudd to voice a character who at first never ages, and then after that only a little. The other bigger names, James Franco, Benicio Del Toro and Marianne Cotillard, fare less well, though that's a lot to do with having so little to do, Cotillard in particular. Rachel McAdams does a fine job as the mum, but she doesn't bring any extra depth or interest to the character that a capable voiceover artist wouldn't have done. As for the rest of it though, it's just lovely and fantastic and beautiful and I basically need to have my own little model of the prince (laughs) um, and all of his planet and stuff because they're amazing. (laughs) And also just before you um, give me your thoughts, Scott, if you haven't already, look up the suitcase that um, the director prepared to send to actors to try and get them to come on board the or rather um, the animator prepared to get the actors to come on board because it's the most beautiful and amazing and over-the-top thing just to try and get people interested in your pitch. (laughs) World famous, you say, Little Prince. I actually hadn't heard of it until until it showed up on the list for this. Um, Yeah, um, can I just just, say so? I do see world famous because I've checked into it and it is. When I first heard about Little Prince and I was told about the Prince and you've read that as a child, like, Nope. <laughs> no. Everybody's heard of it. Nope. I've never heard of it. It's all over the place in France. I've got this incredibly beautiful pop-up book of it in French for um, as my target to learn enough French to be able to actually read the book. Um, <laughs> and it's beautiful and it's all over the place. And there's a Spanish version, there's an Italian version. It's all over the place. And like it's been this story's been adapted like three hundred times. Like <laughs> But I'd never heard of it, so it's worth it. It's just probably not to me, and also you. Yes, not in Scotland, apparently. Um, but I'm glad I saw it, because I loved it. Um, it's got a lot, I don't know, thematically, maybe emotionally, with um, actually Toy Story 3. There's a lot of um, mm-hmm. things about growing up and leaving things behind and all that sort of stuff. Um, that's inside childish things and things like that. Yeah, yeah, and... Um, if Mary and Max contained 100% of the themes, uh, feels, at least I was prepared for those, and I wasn't really prepared for them in The Little Prince, and I was, I'm not ashamed to say it, I cried a little bit at the end of The Little Prince. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's a really charming story. Um, I'd never heard of this before, but yeah, just the way that it all plays out is absolutely fantastically enjoyable. Um, really great stuff. And yes, the, the CG stuff is... I think you said unremarkable. Um, that's probably about right. It's, it, it looks good enough. Uh, but it, it passes muster. Um, but I think a lot of that clearly is kind of intentional. Um, yeah, exactly. It's just because the the final the third act, the CGI stuff feels better. Yeah, it's a lot more um, alive in that final uh, stretch. Yeah, it yeah. feels it's trying to like, it's kind of like somewhere between the stop motion and the earlier CG stuff. Yeah. Um, Yes, it's a really interesting kind of clash and mesh of styles uh, as it goes along. I don't think I've seen anything quite like it in that regard. Um, the way that the actual technique of making the film is meshed with the narrative in, in that way. It's, <laughs> it's really quite innovative. And uh, yeah, it's in service of such a lovely story uh, with such charming characterizations and charming characters that it's difficult not to love it. Uh, yeah, just terrific film i'm very glad uh, it showed up on this list and i enjoyed it immensely uh yeah lots of things to love in here i will happily revisit this in future uh yeah great stuff great stuff good i'm very glad you enjoyed it mm-hmm. so we're staying in france for our last film a film we have in fact covered on this before but that was 
in 2017, the before times. So <laughs> the way you calculate this, it's like you take anything from before March this year and add 45 years, and you have roughly how long ago anything happened. <laughs> yes, uh, we're talking, of course, about ma vie de courgettes, or my life as a courgette, or I believe that would be. As you say, we spoke about this back in our submission episode back in July 2017, so I may not give this the... Well, I'll give this an even more hastily abridged version than normal, but we liked it very much back then, and at the risk of spoiling the results of this review, nothing has happened in the intervening years to make me reconsider that opinion. Yes, in which... Uh, Taken into a children's home after accidentally killing his drunken layabout mother, Icar, preferring to be called Courgette, struggles to fit in alongside his fellow children uh, that the world has already damaged in various heartrending ways. However, an already disrupted life is further be turmoiled when Camille arrives and steals Courgette's heart. Metaphorically, it's not literally heartrending. Claude Barras has picked an interesting and unique style for this film's animation, perhaps most closely resembling the drawings that the film's subjects make make themselves, but of course, rather more beautifully realised. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, rather like Mary and Max, it is, despite its style, ploughing some very dark places for themes and comes out much the stronger for it, particularly when leavened with a great deal of humour and humanity. And stop me if you've heard this one before, but this is a really good film and I recommend it highly. Yes, uh, really, really enjoyable stuff and happy to come visit this one again. Drew, do you have anything in particular to add that we've not said already? Oh, um, first of all, it's like sometimes we engineer these episodes simply to discover things. <laughs> in this case, everything apart from the first two I selected for this podcast because I knew they were good. Uh, <laughs> the whole point of this episode is that I love stop motion animation. Uh, we love stop motion animation. So yeah. I wanted to give good examples of them. The Wild Card was a Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you already liked the V. Harryhausen style, which is the case of which film we talked about turned out to be one that was actually surprisingly just enjoyable as a, a good adventure yarn. As for this, we're finishing on a kind of a downer note in terms of like the content. But it's just, I think the technically this is perhaps one of the, the lesser ones um, because it's a fairly standard claymation um, but there's a lot of expressiveness in the over large heads and the big large eyes yeah. big large great grammar big large <laughs> um, the big large not small eyes um, <laughs> and it still, it still looks great um, this film's particular strength actually though it's not so much the animation the animation's just a I think one of the strengths of animation, and not just stop motion, is that it kind of lowers your defences so you can actually have something like much more hard-hitting yeah. and not really be expected and be more effective for that. Yeah. And this is certainly one of those cases. Uh, this film's real strength is its script, written by Celine Sciamma, who we talked about just recently with Tomboy. Yeah. And it has that same sort of gentle dealing of childhood and potential childhood traumas and difficulties. This one, the the actual difficulties in face by children are, are way beyond what's in Tomboy. But it has that same sort of careful, gentle touch to it, which is really, really good. Uh, it's visually probably the least remarkable of the ones we're talking about. But it has a distinctive style as well. And yeah, it's just, no less charming for all of that, yeah. No, absolutely not. It, it's, just, it's just nice. Um, it's actually also... Remarkably short, it's only 66 minutes. Um, yeah. Although, I was curious about this and did check this. That does count as a feature film. The, <laughs> both the BFI and AFI say anything over 40 minutes is a feature, or it's maybe even 35. 
I think 40. They, <laughs> there's a French um, organisation that says it's anything over, I think, 55 minutes. It's a feature, which is fine because the French invented cinema, so I reckon they get to have the biggest say. Um, <laughs> and it's only the Screen Actors Guild who says anything over 75 minutes is a... As uh, so we over 75 minutes for feature, but I suspect that's probably a negotiating tactic or something to do with pay <laughs> or something like that. Um, so definitely a feature. But, uh, yeah, it's it's charming and lovely. It's gentle and kind and one of those really good animations that seem to kind of understand childhood. Yeah. Like, and the, the simple interactions between children when they're alone in a way that doesn't feel like it's an adult guessing how that would go or anything or not misremembering. It, it, yeah. It feels right. Whether I get not being a child anymore because that happened in the before before times <laughs> um it's a little dim and distant memory now but it feels right it feels like it's not forced and it's not a misinterpretation or like rose tinted glasses or anything it, f- it feels just kind of just right for how the children go and like um and it's some wonderful bits of humor too like the misunderstanding of, of how sex works and things and yeah. the, the fear that their teacher um might have his um, wiener explode. <laughs> it's a lovely film. I, I recommend every one of these films in this podcast. So watch them all. That's your, your well, your duty, frankly. Yes, yes. I don't recall now if we said at the start, but we've um, purposely excluded some like films from this list because we're going to get into that next time in our next podcast. Some more great films to recommend. Yeah, so until next time, take care of yourself and each other. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do podcast at fudsonfilm.com or uh, on Twitters at twitter.com slash Uh Yes, I shall bid you do, and I'm sure Drew will do too. Fare thee well. 